Let's turn with me to Romans chapter 14, verse 9. I'm going to start with verse 7. For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord, and whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived. He might be Lord both of the dead and the living. This week, we, some of us went to the funeral, and we see a person who passed away. And we think about God a lot in those times when we die, or when we know someone who died. And we think that God is a God of the dead, because then when someone dies, we are no longer in control of what we do, or our behavior, or our destiny. So we tend to think of God as the God of the dead. God that controls and have authority and have dominion over the dead and not the living. But today, I want us to focus on this side of dying, and that is living. How do we think of God as someone who is the Lord of the living and not the dead? And why do we need to think of God as the God of the living and not the dead? We tend to draw our lives into two parts. The living part belongs to us, and then, and then the dying part belongs, well, to whoever owns us after we die. So drawing that distinction allows us to live any way we want, however we want, because while we live, we have no Lord, but when we die, we come together, we invite the pastors or the priests or whoever that knows about death, and then they do this magical ceremony, and hopefully we go and be with God. Does that make sense? If we don't live for the Lord, how can you die in the Lord? If in our lives we don't live for God, how can we say that we're going to die in the Lord? It makes no sense. Paul was astounded when the Corinthians didn't realize this. They live the way they want to, and then Paul says, you don't know that you belong to God? and that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that you are not yourself, so you belong to God. Don't you know this? In the early days of Christianity, or we begin to think about death as something that belongs to God, and then our lives belong to us. That is not scriptural, and that's not Christianity. Christianity focuses on what you do now, not what you can't do after you're dead. So Paul reminds the Romans, the, the Romans that Jesus Christ did not only die, but he rose from the dead. And therefore, he is God not just of the dead, but also of the living. What does it mean for Christ to be the Lord of the living? For none of us liveth to himself, and no man dieth to himself. Who owns my life? Most of us Americans say, we own our lives. When you're young, you think that way. And when you have a family, then you think that your partner owns you. And then when you have kids, obviously your kids own you, whatever they want to do. Whether it's their extra curriculum, whether it's their study, whether it's whatever it is, our kids own us. But this is a misunderstanding of ownership. Who owns your life? Romans 14, 7 says, For none of us lives to himself and no man dies to himself. The dying part we understand. We don't die to ourselves. If we die to ourselves, then we doom. But what about the living part? Who do we live for? Who's in charge? Who is in control of your life? 
Let's say on Sunday, there are two, there used to be three worship services, there are two worship services. Let's say if I get to choose which one I go to, then which one do you go to? So who controls my life? You, the services to you control whether or not I go to church in the morning or I go to church in the afternoon. For example, if I go to church at one o'clock in the afternoon, then when you come here, what happens? There's no church. In the simplest sense, we realize that we live for other people. But in the greater, in the absolute sense, we live for God. It is God that authorized and causes me to think about how should I conduct my life. You can say, well, today my kid is sick, so I'm going to stay home. But I can't say that, can I? I can't say, my kid in Vietnam is sick. My grandkid is sick, so I'm going to stay home today and mourn his sickness. And then you come here, and what? Doors locked, can't open. Who do we live for? How do we wrap our minds around, you know what? It's my time, it's my family, it's my life. I get to do whatever I want to do. Can we really think of worshiping God in that sense? Don't we have an obligation to the one who saves us? Paul says that no one lives for himself. But if we read the scripture and we say, you know what? I don't believe in this part. I only take the part, if I die, then I belong to the Lord. That sounds good. But then if you don't live for the Lord while you're living, then you can't die in the Lord. You have to live for the Lord. Then when you die, you die in the Lord. It doesn't make any sense for you to live for yourself. And then when you die, the pastor come over and do this magical thing and somehow you end up in heaven. Now, I'm not someone who is going to authorize you to go to heaven in the same way. I can't say a prayer and then you go to heaven. It doesn't work that way. God determines who goes to heaven or to who goes with him. What I can do is based on your confession, how are you going to conduct and live your life determines how you are going to end up after you die. If I don't live for myself, then who, for whom do I live for? And how do I live on behalf of someone else? Am I living for God or the devil? If I'm living for God, then would not my work reflect God's will, not my own work? If I'm living without the knowledge of God, then who do I truly live for? The devil's purpose since the beginning in the garden was to tell us that God does not care how you live. God does not care what you do. His intent is to hide things from you. So that's the devil's purpose in the beginning. And that's how he deceived Eve. Said God doesn't care. God doesn't want you to know. The devil still continues to tempt us in such a way that causes us to not realize what the purpose of God is for your lives. And a lot of us today think that we own our lives. We don't own our lives. God owns us. Now, if you think that you own your life, then you are deceived because that's what the devil tells you. The devil say, says to Eve, said, it's up to you. It's always up to you. If you're not your own, then who do you belong to? There are only two choices. You belong to God or you belong to the devil. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost? which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. The Apostle Paul told the church at Corinth, don't you know this? Don't you know that your body is not your own? You can't just say that I want to do this today. You can't say that I feel this way or I don't feel this way. That's not up to you. It's up to 
God to determine what your life should be and for you to obey that voice or you obey the voice that's in your head and what voice is it in your head? It's the devil's voice. So if you are serving that voice in your head, you're not serving God, you're serving the devil. This idea of dispossession confused the early Christians as well. Once they get into the church, they think we're going to heaven. But the Apostle Paul wrote to the, the church at Corinth and he said, what? Don't you know this? Don't you know that you don't own your body? You don't own your life. You can't decide what you want to do and what you don't want to do. Your life is already determined by God. And then you're sitting there, well, I don't know what God wants. Many Christians today, however, they believe that they have the right, especially in America. We believe that we are our own individual. We behave and act the way that we want to, irrespective of everyone else around us. No one is my God. That is the, the thought of the Enlightenment era. So after the Enlightenment, people begin to ask, well, who wrote the Bible? Who has the authority to say what I can or cannot do? Well, you know what? If you're thinking that way, you're already old. Because now it's postmodern. Everyone is right. No one is wrong. Everything you do, it only has intrinsic value to you and no one else. We are not the master of our own lives. Every time you ask yourself this question, what do I feel like? I want you to stop and rethink that thought. Where did that thought come from? Is it come from me or is it come from God? We are not the master of our own lives. Jesus has redeemed you. If he did, then you belong to the one that saved you. You know not that your body your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. First of all, it means that your, your body, your life belongs to God. What you do, where you go, what you put in it, you have to do it in accordance to God's will. You can't just say, well, I feel like, let's just say, I feel like eating this. So you eat it. Well, that's what happened in the garden, right? I feel like eating that. You see, don't you know that your body, the Apostle Paul says, is the temple of the Holy Spirit? You belong to God. Everything that you do has to be subservient to the will of God. So you are not your own. What you think should be subservient to the Word of God. You can't just think whatever you want. Everything that you do belongs to God. Every thought, notion, belongs to God. Everything that you put in your body, where you go, what you do, belongs to God. So the first question you should ask is, what does God want me to do? That should be the thing. What time does God want me to wake up? You see, because if I want to do things on my own, I don't want to go to church at 7 o'clock in the morning. You don't want to go to church at 7 o'clock in the morning, do you? But I don't have that choice. It's not my choice to make. I don't live because I own this body. God owns this body. And so I have to obey God. If everyone lives for themselves, then this is the church that we have. Every week, it's up to people's whim, whether they come or they don't come. No one is responsible for God. And therefore, we, don't, we can't have a church if everyone acts according to how they feel like. If I feel like I don't want to, to wake up at 7, I feel like I want to wake up at 12, and I can come up with whatever reasons that might suit me then we don't have a community. We don't have a church. We can't have a society, a functioning society, where everyone do what they feel like doing. Christians do not own their lives. They belong to Christ. They are priests standing between God and the people. 
In Revelation, John says, we are kings and priests in Christ. What does that mean? It means that every one of us have the first and foremost obligation to be a person standing between the people and God. You are standing in the place of a priest. Now, the priest's time and place and position is determined by God, not by the people and not by himself. So if you are a priest, wherever you stand has to be directed and commanded by God. God puts you there. So if God says that this is the place I put you, this is the time I put you, then you get to, you have to be there at that time in that place according to God's will. And John says, we are kings and priests. And Peter reiterated this. We are a generation, a royal priesthood in Christ. So our lives are not dependent on your feeling at the moment because everyone feels crappy in the morning. At times in their lives, they don't want to do certain things. But we are not our own. We are priests to the Lord. We have to put on our priestly garment and we got to stand before God and for the people at the time that God has appointed. How do you live for Christ, living for Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.15 And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which dieth for them and rose again. Again, the Apostle Paul wrote the second letter to the church in Corinth, and he retell them the same thing. Remember, again, you should no longer live for yourself. You should live for Christ, that they which live should not henceforth from now on live unto themselves. Are you living for yourself? Let me dare to say this. We all, 99.999% of our time, we're living for ourselves, don't we? But then, the Apostle Paul says, we, the church, the people of God, the Christians, should not live for ourselves, but unto him which died for them. Now, does God have better thing to do than be here right now? But then some of us have better things to do right now. That's why we're not here. You think that Jesus Christ had better things to do than to be born here on this earth to live his life here like one of us and then die. But then we have better things to do than to worship him and to do according to his will. If you can understand that, you realize that very disrespectful for God. God put everything on hold. All eternity, the 99 that God put aside, put them on hold, and he went after the one lost sheep, Everything was put on hold to go find you. But then some of us, we think we have better things to do. Some of us say we have no plans. The Lord directs his steps. I, I don't have any plans. I don't have any purpose. The Lord will direct my steps. That's what it says in Proverbs 16, 9. You live carefree. It doesn't matter. I go to church. I don't go to church. I worship. I don't worship. The Lord directs my steps. In the end, he knows what's going to happen to me. I don't have to worry about it. The same author, he says this. The lazy and indolent, in the winter, he doesn't sow and he doesn't reap because it's too cold outside. And then when time of harvest comes, he has nothing and he begs and no one gives to him. We have to understand and know that we need to have a plan. See, God did not create a bunch of robots, pre-program and then you do exactly what happened. No, he gives us our freedom so that we willingly subject ourselves, giving ourselves our time, our devotion to God, so that we serve Him willingly, 
not because he makes us. That's not the God that I serve. This attitude of I have no plans, the lack of faith. Faith is, is actually obedient. Whatever the word of God says, I obey, that is faith. But when the word of God says something and I ignore it, that's unbelief. Then some of us say that, well, I have life's obligations. I have to work. I have school. I take care of my kids. I'm sick. I'm tired. I'm in pain. I need a day off. Sunday is a good day to take a day off. I just don't feel like I want to do anything. I want to sleep in. Ephesians 4.17 says this, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. We did not get saved so that we continue to do the things that we used to do. I go to work, I go get earn money, go to school, do all those things are necessary, but they should not take away from your worship of God. And the worship of God should be preeminent, should be first in our lives. And then all the rest will follow. Isn't that what Jesus says? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. We are in search of everything else in the absence of God in the end. We are without God. You have been delivered from this world so that you can freely live your, your life without the consciousness of God. That doesn't make sense. Lastly, how should one live according to the will of God? How can I structure my life according to Christ's purpose? This is what we should pursue. 1 Peter 4.2 says, That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh, to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. God has redeemed you. You have been baptized. A lot of you have been baptized. When you have been baptized, here the scripture says that, that he or she, the children of God, no longer should live the rest of their lives. So before you were baptized, you lived the way of sinners do. But after you are baptized, you should no longer, this is the Apostle Peter now speaking, not the Apostle Paul, just confirming what the scripture says. You should no longer live the rest of your life. Now compare your life after you have been baptized and your life before you were baptized. Is it the same? Are you still doing the same thing? Or even worse, you now spend less time doing what God's will is, but more time doing what you want because now you're free. Your conscience is free from guilt and condemnation. So you go ahead and continue to live your life as if God doesn't matter. I'm baptized. I'm saved, right? But the Apostle Peter says, spend the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men. It cannot be, but to the will of God. So what is God's will? You must know that God's will is not your will. We might not know what God, God's will is, but we know what our will is. And the Bible says, His will is not my will. Higher is the heaven from the earth, so is God's way than my way. So my way and my will is not God's will. My way and my will is not God's. So if you are doing things according to your will and your way, it's not God's will. So does that mean that I should do everything against my will? It's a start. Because everything that you want to do some of you find it really hard to be here today. That's good. That must be God's will. It starts there. To live according to God's will is to study the Lord and then imitate Him. Now, a lot of people wanted to go and follow Christ. And then what did they say? Lord, we really want to follow you, but I got to go home and bury my father. I really want to follow you, but I just got married. So, can't. 
We really want to follow you, but I got to go back and say goodbye to my family. You know what the Lord's response to those people were? If you begin to go with Christ and you look back, then you're not fit for the kingdom of God. If you have begun to put your hand to the plow, don't look back. Because those who look back is like Lot's wife. You can't get out of Sodom when you keep looking back. And what happened to Sodom? It burns. Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism unto death. Those who have been baptized. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So those who are baptized, is your life today different than your life before you were baptized? If your life today, just like the life you were before you were baptized, then I would say this, you have not been born again. You see, the act of baptism is the confirmation of a new life, according to our Protestant belief. The confirmation of the new life, not the initiation of the new life, is the confirmation of the new life. So if you're born again and you live just like you were before you were baptized, then you have not been born again into the newness of life. The process of being born again is not a makeover of the old self. The Apostle Peter says that you should no longer live the rest of your life. So the time before you were baptized and the time after you are baptized should be different. You should live differently. But I don't feel anything different. We'll get to that. The Apostle Paul says that you are a new creature, which means that there is a new creature living in this body. There's a new person living in this body. But you can continue to live your old self in this body, and that new creature is still born. It doesn't get mature. It doesn't take over your life. So your thought, your mind, and your attitude, your action is still the same as you were. In effect, I think this is the part where the Catholic doctrine explains it really well. It means that you kill the baby. You kill the new birth in you. I feel the same way. I see the same way as I were before I was baptized. Isn't there something magical, something different should happen to me, some supernatural phenomenon that happened to me after I'm born again? It is a disservice for those who say that I want to be baptized, and after you baptize, you live in opposition to the Word of God. Other people look at you and they say, wait, that person baptized already. How come that person's still living that way? Our witness become antichrist. The Apostle Peter says this, rather that person had never known Christ than to know Christ and then to fall away. Because once you profess, you say that you know the Lord, you know Christ, and then you still live the same way that you were before. And even worse, you're now baptized. So you say to everyone who is around, hey, you can be baptized, you can look like a Christian, but then you can live like a non-Christian, like a sinner, like a wicked person, and it's okay. You are testifying against the Lord Jesus Christ when you live that way. The process of being born again is the sovereign work of God. Not because you say, hey, it sounds good to be baptized, so um, I want to be baptized, and then we do the baptism, and magically, you're now in the kingdom of God. No. Baptism is the sign of what God's doing on the inside. Now, if God's not doing anything on the inside, 
Baptism is basically taking a bath with the pastor. That's it. The process of being born again is the sovereign work of God. We cannot explain how it works, but we know this, that rebirth, spiritual rebirth, is not the work that we do, but it's the work that God does. Okay. So the question remains, how do I know that I'm being born again if baptism doesn't tell me? Baptism is the initiation for you to come into the church of God. And even, even then, now, when you're baptized, you say, I'm committed to the church. I'm committed to this physical, visible church. Now, before you are baptized, whether you come to church or not, that's your prerogative. But after you're baptized, what you're saying is, church, I am now part of you. Purely humanistic level. You say, I am now part of this body. I'm now committed to this body. We baptize hundreds of people. But then every Sunday, people are still making a decision. Should I come to church today? Is there any excuse I can make not to come to church? If there isn't, man, then I have to go to church. Is that how, how we function as society? We do whatever we want to do? Whereas we already stand in front of everyone and we say that we are now part of the body of Jesus Christ. And even in this physical body, we can't even bring ourselves to the point where we are committed physically as a human to the body. Let alone we say we are part of the church of God, the invisible church. How can that be? It's impossible. I can't reconcile this. There's, there's no philosophical instrument that I can use to reconcile this. When we say in the physical, in the physical, you say you're baptized, and now you're part of the church, but you know what? I have better things to do today. It's impossible for us to be part of God's invisible church if in the physical and in the visible, we cannot commit ourselves to the physical church. It's impossible. We need God's grace. It's true that it's God's grace that brings us. But the grace of God changes us, changes the way we act and behave. If not, then we have not received the grace of God. True? If we have received the grace of God, then we will cry at Jesus' feet. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. The evidence of love is when we have received love. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 4 said, Yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear. It is God who determines who should get this grace. And if you have received this grace, then your eyes should be enlightened. You should see. Just like Eve, when she ate the apple, her eyes were open. She saw how nakedness she was, that she needs a savior. God must give you the grace to perceive the spiritual kingdom. You might wonder, I can't see the kingdom of God. What does it mean? I don't have God's grace. Yes, you might not have God's grace. The truth is, you might not have God's grace. If you leave that to me as a judge, then we all do. I'm not the judge. God is the judge. God's grace, you need God's grace to see God's kingdom. And there are two ways for you not to see God's kingdom. One is when the kingdom of God is invisible to you, meaning you have no grace. You cannot see it. God has not opened your vision to see God's kingdom. Or two, you're not looking at it. Most people today in the church are not looking at the kingdom of God because they're looking at their own hands. They're looking at their own lives. They're looking at what they don't have. That's what they're looking at. And if you're not looking for the kingdom of God, you're not looking at the kingdom of God and you cannot see the kingdom of God even though it's not invisible to you. If you have no desire to look at God's kingdom, you never see it. You have no intention of looking for God's kingdom. You will never see it. 
if you have been given the grace to look at God's kingdom and still cannot see it even though you are standing in the kingdom then you have not learned to recognize the kingdom of God you might be looking at the kingdom of God but you don't see it it means that you have not learned to see the kingdom of God how do you learn to see the kingdom of God Matthew 18 3 verily I say unto you except ye be converted and become as little children ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven and according to Jesus the only way for you to see the kingdom of heaven and enter into the kingdom of heaven is to be converted into a child children have a natural curiosity to learn the world around them because they're not so arrogant to say that they know everything so they're curious they want to know everything an eight-year-old child doesn't understand death yet but she has a natural inquisitiveness to want to know to see a dead body she took my hand we went up near the casket and she stood far away from the casket and she looked she examined the dead body she doesn't understand it yet but she wants to find out and then I asked her you want to go closer and then she go and so she got closer to the casket and she looked and then this is what she said he doesn't look dead he looks sleeping we have a cognitive barrier we perceive things without looking at it sometimes and we think that dead person dead people look a certain way until you get close to one and you actually look at it like a child and you go huh. looks like a person sleeping no big deal when they put the casket down they put the cement lid over it and then they start putting the dirt over and this is what she said how's he, he gonna get out can he breathe How can he breathe if he put all that dirt over? It's a healthy curiosity. We need to look at the kingdom of heaven from that perspective. Don't assume that you know everything there is to know about the kingdom of God without looking closely, coming closer to the word of God and start looking at it like a child. We need to learn. We need to learn everything. Being born again is the beginning of our education, of spiritual education. If you're not looking at the Bible, if you're not looking at the scripture, you're not learning it, then you're only assuming and your assumption i'll tell you this it's all wrong we can go through our lives and 43 years later and say this is the first time i see a dead body people die all the time but we choose not to see it and we live half of our lives and never see it because we're afraid of what knowledge we're afraid of knowledge understanding does not come when we are surrounded by the kingdom understanding only comes when we start to learn about the kingdom be humble become inquisitive be curious about everything that's going on in in the kingdom of god then you will learn something deconstruction of your old self matthew 11 12 the kingdom of god is a violent kingdom the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force the kingdom of god is taken by force you cannot dance your way into the kingdom of heaven it requires blood sweat tears pain and violence to get into the kingdom of god it's not easy 
to enter the kingdom of God, you must be willing to take it by force. Do you assume that entering into the kingdom is simple? I'm just going to walk in. It requires you and I to sacrifice. It requires you and I to do the hard thing, not the easy thing. The kingdom of God is not, shouldn't it come natural? Should I just love the Lord and then wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and come to church? No. If it's hard for you to wake up, it's hard for me to wake up. It doesn't come easier for me than it comes for you. And look at Jesus Christ. He went up into the mountain and prayed, and his sweat as drops of blood. It's not easy for us. The kingdom of God is not acquired because, oh, I feel like it's a good day to go worship the Lord today. So somehow, God sends you a patch of cloud, and you sit on the cloud and usher you into church, and everything sounds and looks rosy. No, it doesn't look that way. It gets cold in the morning. It's freezing in here. I got to go change the batteries for those thermostats so I can turn them on. By the time you get here, it's nice and warm. It's a struggle. And sometimes I wonder, hey, why am I doing this? Why can't I go to a 1 o'clock service? Why you guys go to the 10 o'clock service? The kingdom of God suffers violence. You and I, we want to live our life that way, then we need to pay the price. We all need to pay the price. It's not easy. If it's easy, it's not the kingdom of God. Since the day of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God suffers violence. Let me tell you this. After work, I go to the gym. When I go to the gym, there's only two things I do. One is called strength training. It's where you load up a lot of weight and you do a lot of reps. But that's the easy part. The hard part is about 8 to 15 minutes where I do things very quickly, in good form, and it's really hard. If you think that one minute is short, come to the gym with me. Just 8 minutes. And you will realize how long one minute is. Every second is an eternity when things are hard. Every second is a long time. And I do it every day to remind myself that I don't like this. But if it's good for me, then I need to pay the price because nothing comes easy. Every minute of comparison to the things I do for the kingdom of God. How do I spend my minutes for God, for the kingdom of God, versus how do I spend my seconds doing things for myself? Because I can't waste my time doing things that are not beneficial to you, the church, or to the kingdom of God. How do we spend our time? How do we count our minutes, our seconds, let alone our hours, and half a day? We don't know what do we do. There's no easy way to get into the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3.12 Yea, and all that will live a godly life in Jesus Christ shall suffer persecution. Christianity is not the road for the faint-hearted. It requires personal sacrifice. It requires everything you got. The old self hangs on. When Jesus met Bartimaeus, he was blind, came into contact with Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible says. He cast off his old garment and came to Jesus. You cannot come to Jesus with everything that you want to hold on to, plus Jesus along with uh, your other stuff. It doesn't work that way. Bartimaeus, a beggar, he knew how to walk with Jesus. If you want to walk with Jesus, we need to start throwing away all the other junk and go with Jesus. What do you go to church with? Knowing this, Romans 6, 6, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Paul used the word destroy here. 
the body of sin might be destroyed. That henceforth we should not serve sin. How to destroy your old self? Who is setting the agenda for your life? You all have a calendar, right? Who is setting that calendar? What is on that calendar? What are the forces that control how you should live? What you should eat? What you should put on? Where are you going to be this evening? What are the forces that control your decisions? Who has the authority to govern what you do and what you should not do? Who's in charge? If you're not with Christ, Jesus says, then you are against him. You're not going with Christ, there's nowhere else to go except with the devil. There is no middle ground whether you serve God or you are the servant of the devil. This old self must die for you to serve the living God because you cannot have both your old self and living for God. You can't. You must sacrifice something. But you know, the Bible says this. The process of carrying a baby in your womb is painful. The birthing process is painful. But when the child is born, everything is forgotten because you brought life into the world. And that's why I do this. Because this process, like the Apostle Paul says, he travailed in birth pain until you see Christ forming in you. This is the process of travail, but I believe that one day, I hope that everyone here will bear the image of Jesus Christ. That's my hope. Even though my eyes and even though my mind tells me differently, but I hope that one day all of you will bear the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to do the hard things. The question is, when do we mature to the point where we all begin to carry within in us the womb of the Lord Jesus Christ? We have to sacrifice to give life. Without sacrifice, there is no life. You see, it's like the Apostle Paul says, I could, if I want to, have a wife. But I'm a bondservant to Jesus Christ. It's not what I will, but what God's will. What is God's will for me? What are we willing to give up and sacrifice so that we bring a soul into the kingdom of God? Let's come to the Lord in prayer. Jesus, we think about what you have done for us. And the life that you did not have in service to all those who are sitting here and throughout history, every single soul here was given a chance of the kingdom of God because you gave up your life for us. Lord, forgive me. Forgive us. We think selflessly that our lives belong to us. We get to do whatever we want, set our own agendas, have our own schedules. Forgive us, Lord, that God who did not regard our worthlessness, but you put heaven on pause and came and be a part of us to give your life for us so that we today count the hours and the minutes that we spare for you on Sundays and Saturdays and some other days of the week. And we count that as something momentous, something that great and sacrificial. That you didn't regard your life and your livelihood as something to be accounted for, but you lay it all down 
so that we might live today, that we might have the inheritance in Christ before the Lord God. Forgive us that we live so selfishly. Turn our heart again, Lord, to see the sacrifice, not just in the songs that we sing, but in the act that we do. Those things that we do that exemplify our devotion, our faith to you. Can we truly say that we are living for you when we count every second that we have to be in your presence or to spend for you? Forgive us, Lord, and give us the awareness and the wisdom to understand that life is truly free when we are in the temple of the Holy Spirit, that our lives are truly enjoyable and worth living when we are living for you. Help us, Lord, to be like children, curious, to peer into that mystery of the gospel and to begin to realize that there are much to learn and that we become grateful for the opportunity to sacrifice our lives so that a spiritual rebirth can be born into this kingdom of God that we so long for. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.